Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Liam McCollum Show. It's been a very long time, but as you may know, Tucker Carlson just interviewed Vladimir Putin, and I figured I'd bring on my friend Ethan Holmes to do a walkthrough of it. Um, if you're a listener of this show, if you've listened in the past, you may know I've had Ethan on quite a few times now to talk about this issue. He is an expert on the issue, and um, it's been a large focus of mine uh, for the last two years. I've interviewed people like Scott Horton, Benjamin Ablo, um, Ethan, and, and many others about this topic. And as it's developed, it's it's been very, very relieving to see people like Tucker Carlson and people on the right actually come out against this war and against the United States' involvement in it. And it seems to kind of just be, um, it, it seems to be losing all, you know, steam as people are saying that in Ukraine, there's divisions within the government, things like that. And and I think with the release of Tucker's interview here, we're going to start to see uh, people calling for a complete end to the war. Um, so, Ethan, thank you so much for, for coming on the show again. Thank you, Liam, for having me. It's uh, always been a pleasure to talk to you about this. And of course, like uh, I think you've said on your uh, your social media, this is a very, very significant interview. Um, not necessarily entirely new, having had the Oliver Stone interviews um, not too long ago with Putin. Um, but this is certainly a crescendo in the Ukraine skepticism uh, among the uh, American public. Um, I think this interview is a good way. I think a lot of people find thoughts that they have had, feelings that they've had about this conflict expressed by both Tucker and perhaps by uh, President Putin himself. And so I'm excited to do this breakdown with you and, uh, you know, see what this little gem has to offer us. Now, I have not watched the interview and, and you have um, and you recommended that we actually skip through the beginning here because there's quite a bit of history that he gets into. Um, what, what was your takeaway just of that really quick? And then also, can you remind the audience um, just a little bit about yourself, why you're um, or what you do and why you're so knowledgeable about this topic and uh, maybe talk about what you heard um, from the Pentagon prior to this interview. How were they reacting to it? What was uh, Washington saying about this interview? Absolutely. Well, I'll kind of weave several of those questions together here um, and start with the fact that uh, previously on your podcast, we've talked a lot about Russian history, Ukrainian history, the history of Eastern Europe and a kind of Western civilization in general as it relates to that sphere. And Putin did the same exact thing that we did um, in our early episodes. And we started delving into this issue and talking about it by starting with the history dating back not just decades, but hundreds of years, um, you know, thousands of years even back into the history of Eastern Europe. And sometimes, uh, you know, from the American perspective, that might seem like a lot to take in. And that's kind of exactly what we saw with Tucker and Putin in the first 30, 40 minutes of the interview was Tucker was just having to soak in hundreds and hundreds of years of history and nuance, you know, try and separate, you know, fact from potential fiction, you know, paint a clearer picture in his own mind of how exactly we've landed ourselves in this situation, right? Not only how did Russia and Ukraine come into this conflict with one another, but how did the U.S. and other Western powers get drawn in as well? And so I definitely recommend people who are unfamiliar with that history uh, to go back and watch that. Uh, I myself, uh, like Liam asked me to mention, I uh, have a degree in Russian and political science from the University of Montana, a really standout um, Russian and Russian history department 
there at the University of Montana. I got to give them a lot of uh, credit because uh, I think they're underrated out there. Um, but if you haven't taken university level courses, done independent studies uh, on the history of this conflict in Eastern Europe in general, it's a great uh, lecture from Professor Putin, so to speak. Um, and he really lets his uh, his touchatism out there. You know, there's been the Pentagon reports, uh, you know, questioning whether perhaps he he, uh, he has Asperger's or something. And uh, the evidence of, of a 30 minute rant that he prefaces, it's only going to be like 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, but then he just goes off and, and won't even let Tucker uh, get a question in there. But I believe we're going to skip past that at least um, and go right into kind of the, the meat and potatoes of the interview about where things stand more currently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and really quick, I, I am curious. So you cover um, Russian news every day and, and U.S. news every day and, and the relationship uh, between the two countries. Um, it, it was fascinating watching the reaction to just the news that Tucker was going to interview Vladimir Putin. Apparently, the EU um, announced that they were considering sanctions on Tucker. Uh, so I'm wondering when when you were uh, listening in on the Pentagon spokesperson or when you were in, in the press room, what, what were people saying? Well, one thing that actually surprised me was that there wasn't a more immediate preemptive pushback to the interview from officials in the Biden administration. Of course, as you said, a lot of the mainstream media was getting uh, really up in a frenzy about it, really pushing back against it. But surprisingly, uh, the White House and the Pentagon really kind of stayed on the safer end of things and almost didn't want to touch it at all, which might be revealing in and of itself. You know, the White House, I think it was John Kirby said, you know, don't don't take it all that seriously. You know, we all kind of know what to expect from an interview like this. Um, but overall, I was actually surprised that we didn't see more preemptive pushback from the Biden administration. That is not to say that it was lacking uh, because of the, the mainstream media. Uh, who really, you know, they had a point, they have been requesting an interview like this for a long time, probably, but there's a reason they haven't been granted it. Um, and there's a reason that they're jealous um, that it's Tucker of all people getting to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned that I, I pointed out on Twitter um, that this reminded me of Oliver Stone. Um, I, I think that this is probably up there with uh, Oliver Stone's interview as, as the most important interview of the 21st century thus far. And um, in, in, the Oliver Stone Putin interviews, uh, uh, he he basically sits down with him over a four year period. And when he came back to the States and released the interview in a CBS interview, Oliver Stone sat down with Charlie Rose and a few others and was basically accused of, you know, um, creating a love letter to Putin. And his response was that you only catch flies with honey, not vinegar. And I find that so wise and 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 really what Tucker's doing with this interview um, is what every journalist should have been trying to do since the beginning of this war. Um, so yeah, let's let's get into it. I fast forwarded to um, 30 minutes into the interview. Uh, we're just going to walk through it and then stop throughout. I like I said, I haven't seen any of this. So um, I've got to add quickly that I'm definitely jealous alongside everyone with Tucker. Um, as someone who works directly with Russian media outlets, you know, I, I would have loved to have a connection like this to get to interview Putin. Um, so it's not like it's just Western media that doesn't get opportunities like this. They're tough opportunities all around. Um, yeah. But we were definitely all hyped to um, to see what came of it. Yeah. Nevertheless, not bitter. Well, that would be a very fascinating interview between you two. But all right, let's let's get going with this, because um, we have a two hour limit on StreamYard. So if we don't make it all the way through, 
we're going to have to cut it off, but I highly recommend everyone watch this all the way through and, and um, watch the first 30 minutes too. But here we go. President in 2000, I thought, okay, the Yugoslav issue is over, but we should try to restore relations. Let's reopen the door that Russia had tried to go through. And moreover, I said it publicly, I can reiterate. At a meeting here in the Kremlin with the outgoing President Bill Clinton, right here in the next room, I said to him, I asked him, Bill, do you think if Russia asked to join NATO, do you think it would happen? Suddenly he said, you know, it's interesting. I think so. But in the evening, when we met for dinner, he said, you know, I've talked to my team. No, no, it's not possible now. You can ask him. I think he will watch. All right. So you mentioned this on the podcast before, um, this history, and I think it's often overshadowed that... um, you know, that Russia actually reached out and wanted to join NATO. And and I think if you steel man the argument for NATO, it, it, it's this idea that if if you can get everyone involved in this kind of fraternal organization, um, you're less likely to have war within within Europe, um, because if, if they're all within alliance and within an alliance, uh, you won't have wars among those countries. It's the same argument with having like the the federal government a federalist system as opposed to the articles of confederation i think that's the steel man argument so theoretically you would want russia to be a part of that organization if if you want to um have world peace in my mind so i'm wondering what you think of that yeah i think that that moment right there and him recounting that story with bill clinton is is a really key moment that he continually brings up throughout the interview this idea of russian joining a larger western involved security uh, structure uh so like you said we've brought this up in interviews before because putin has brought it up in interviews before uh where he and bill clinton discussed and initially seemed pretty open to the idea of russia trying to gain entry into nato or another similar joint security uh, coalition for the purposes of the internal benefits more than any external uh, projection benefits that come from a military alliance. Like you said, the the real benefit of the whole uh, relationship and dynamic being that it prevents conflict among members, uh, not just with members and outside uh, forces and entities. Um, and so I think he does continually bring this idea up and he claims to not be bitter about it, to not hold hard feelings and resentment, because Tucker asks him dir- uh, directly about that. Um, but as you watch, I think you'll see he does have an air of at least um, at least disappointment that that's not how history unfolded. All right, let's get back to it. Our interview, he'll confirm it. I wouldn't have said anything like that if it hadn't happened. Okay. Were you well, sincere? It's impossible now. Would you have joined NATO? Look, I asked the question, is it possible or not? And the answer I got was no. If I was insincere in my desire to find out what the leadership position was... But if he had said yes, would you have joined NATO? If he had said yes, the process of rapprochement would have commenced, and eventually it might have happened, if we had seen some sincere wish on the other side of our partners. But it didn't happen. Well, no means no. 
Okay. Fine. Why do you think that is? Just to get to motive, I know you're clearly bitter about it. Um, it means Nia. I understand. We've heard that before. But why do you think the West rebuffed you then? Why the hostility? Actually, I want to stop there again. Uh, you, you should make that connection there. Yeah. So he, he brings up kind of jokingly this no means no right phrase. Um, and, and I believe that that's both a reference um, to a memo written by, I believe it was Ambassador Burns at the time, now CIA Director Burns, um, outlining that Russia's position regarding uh, NATO expansion, Ukraine entering the Western fold, was that niet means niet, no means no, that Russia simply could not tolerate that for geopolitical realist reasons. Uh, so funny. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but yeah, I mean, nothing. it could have been. I mean, I know that like when he was, uh, Scott Horton makes the point that when he was um, announcing that they were going to go into Ukraine, or maybe it was a, a speech after the fact, he would basically allude to a lot of the justifications that um, Bush and Obama had made for various interventions in the Middle East. So I do believe he's intelligent enough to slide something in there like that. But he had also uh, he had um, brought up this in the Oliver Stone interviews as well about whether he would have accepted had Bill Clinton actually accepted the, the um, request to join NATO. And uh, he basically laughed it off, saying he he asked, um, knowing that there's no way they ever would. I, I, I recall I, I think that's similar. It was a similar response. We can get back to it. The other key point being that uh, it wasn't Clinton that was most close to it. It was his advisors. And he brings yeah. it up several times. Uh, and it's probably even truer under Biden, uh, given his, uh, you know, he's the, the puppet on strings, it appears. Right. Why did the end of the Cold War not fix the relationship? I mean, what motivates this from your point of view? You said I was bitter about the answer. No, it's not bitterness. It's just a statement of fact. We're not bride and groom, bitterness, resentment. It's not about those kind of matters in such circumstances. We just realized we weren't welcome there, that's all. Okay, fine. But let's build relations in another manner. Let's work for common ground elsewhere. Why we received such a negative response, you should ask your leaders. I can only guess why too big a country with its own opinion and so on and the united states i've seen how issues are being resolved in nato i will give you another example now concerning ukraine the u.s leadership exerts pressure and all nato members obediently vote even if they do not like something now i'll tell you what happened in this regard with ukraine in 2008 although it's being discussed i'm not going to open a secret to you say anything new nevertheless after that we tried to build relations in different ways for example the events in the middle east in iraq we were building relations with the United States in a very soft, prudent, cautious manner. I repeatedly raised the issue that the United States should not support separatism or terrorism in the North Caucasus. But they continue to do it anyway. And political support, information support, financial support, even military support came I think this is a really uh, important moment to note here. Um, uh, thank you. I'm glad you paused it. Because uh, Scott Horton actually was the first person to turn me on to this little 
um, line of knowledge about the U.S. support for separatist militant groups in the North Caucasus regions there in Russia. Um, you know, a lot of those groups had ties to, you know, groups that the U.S. was claiming to fight, like Al-Qaeda, um, groups that presumably the U.S. and Russia were jointly taking on, kind of like they jointly took on ISIS when that emerged. Um, and so that's something that I think also really goes under uh, underviewed when people are doing the historical overview of the situation, was the U.S. actively supporting uh, these militant separatist violent groups, extremist groups in some cases, in uh, in Russia. So it's it's interesting. It doesn't get brought up much, but I'm glad you yeah. mentioned it here. Yeah, definitely. From the United States and its satellites for terrorist groups in the Caucasus. I once raised this issue with my colleague, also the President of the United States. He says, it's impossible. Do you have proof? I said, yes. I was prepared for this conversation and I gave him that proof. He looked at it and you know what he said? I apologize, but that's what happened. I'll quote. He says, well, I'm gonna kick their ass. We waited and waited for some response. There was no reply. I said to the FSB director, write to the CIA, what is the result of the conversation with president? He wrote once, twice, and then we got a reply. We have the answer in the archive. The CIA replied, we have been working with the opposition in Russia. We believe that this is the right thing to do, and we will keep on doing it. Just ridiculous. Well, okay. We realized that it was out of the question. Forces in opposition to you. So you're saying the CIA is trying to overthrow your government. Of course, they meant in that particular case, the separatists, the terrorists who fought with us in the Caucasus. That's who they called the opposition. So now, on this point, I know in the past he's talked about some of the terrorist attacks that happened um, within Russia because of U.S. support for certain groups uh, or alleged support for certain groups. Um, is this what he's alluding to? I know that there's like the the school bombing and the hospital bombing. Um, yeah, so after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, there's all these small, both Soviet republics and these other internal, uh, often ethnically rooted divisions within the now independent Russian Federation. And so you had the wars there, uh, mainly in Chechnya, uh, there in the North Caucasus region. Um, and their independence and separatist movement was, uh, in some cases, fueled by radical Islamic extremism, which is where uh, you saw lots of Chechen fighters go on to join uh, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS fighting throughout the Middle East on battlefields because they got experience um, there in the 90s, early 2000s, fighting uh, with the Russian military. And there were terrorist attacks, like you said, against schools, uh, Beslan and the Moscow Theater, uh, Moscow apartment uh, bombings. Um, and much like the U.S. sparked its war on terror with the 9-11 attacks, and then there's the conspiracy, was it an inside job? Did the U.S. do it themselves? There's similar conspiratorial thinking in Russian society about some of those attacks. Um, I haven't done a super deep dive uh, into all those, but worth noting at least that there's there's a big parallel between the U.S. and Russia, um, their wars on terror. Uh, after the 9-11 attacks, fun fact, and we can move on, Putin was the very first one to call uh, George W. Bush and offer support and uh, condolences there as the U.S. then went on to venture into the Middle East, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah.
This is the second point. The third moment is a very important one, is the moment when the U.S. missile defense system was created. The beginning. We persuaded for a long time not to do it in the United States. Moreover, after was invited by Bush Jr.'s father, Bush Sr., to visit his place on the ocean, I had a very serious conversation with President Bush and his team. I proposed that the United States, Russia and Europe jointly create a missile defense system that we believe, if created unilaterally, threatens our security, despite the fact that the United States officially said that it was being created against missile threats from Iran. That was the justification for the deployment of the missile defense system. I suggested working together, Russia, the United States and Europe. They said it was very interesting. They asked me, are you serious? I said, absolutely. Let me ask, what year was this? I don't remember. It is easy to find out on the internet when I was in the USA at the invitation of Bush Sr. It is even easier to learn from someone I'm going to tell you about. I was told it was very interesting. I said, just imagine if we could tackle such a global strategic security challenge together. The world will change. We'll probably have disputes, probably economic and even political ones, but we could drastically change the situation in the world. He says yes, and asks, are you serious? I said, of course. We need to think about it, I'm told. I said, go ahead, please. Then Secretary of Defense Gates, former Director of CIA and Secretary of State Rice came in here in this cabinet Right here at this table, they sat on this table. Me, the foreign minister, the Russian defense minister on that side. They said to me, yes, we have thought about it. We agree. I said, thank God, great, but with some exceptions. So twice you've described US presidents making decisions and then being undercut by their agency heads. So it sounds like you're describing a system that's not run by the people who are elected in your telling. That's right, that's right. In the end, they just told us to get lost. I'm not going to tell you the details because I think it's incorrect. After all, it was confidential conversation. But our proposal was declined, that's a fact. It was right then when I said, look, but then we will be forced to take countermeasures. We will create such strike systems that will certainly overcome missile defense systems. The answer was, we are not doing this against you and you do what you want, assuming that it is not against us, not against the United States. I said, okay. Very well. That's the way it went. And we created hypersonic systems with intercontinental range, and we continue to develop them. We are now ahead of everyone, the United States and the other countries, in terms of the development of hypersonic strike systems, and we are improving them every day. But it wasn't us. We proposed to go the other way, and we were pushed back. I, feel like I that's think a, that's an important point, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, the, just the risk yeah. of, of nuclear war. Um, and. I think like very early in this, we should just acknowledge that the idea of the United States and, and Russia being in direct conflict is absolutely terrifying and should should scare everyone. And that's really the backdrop of this interview. And that's why it's so important and, and so great that that Tucker is on the right side of this. Absolutely. You know, there's something to be said about not looking at global geopolitics and foreign affairs like it's a Marvel movie, right? Like we, a lot of people are viewing, you know, Ukraine as sort of the ultimate protagonist and Russia sort of the ultimate evil. You know, the U.S. is this, you know, protector, defender, ally. Uh, but sadly, uh, that's not how global politics actually works. Every country has realist concerns for its security, for its interests, um, for its economic stability, for its growth potential. And these are things that 
very clearly uh, Putin is engaged in and thinking about. You know, Russia is it has to be so globally engaged in a sense because it has China and East Asia on one side, it has Europe on the other, it has Central Asia and the Middle East in between. It would be impossible uh, or at least much harder for them to achieve a sort of uh, isolationist status relative to a country like the United States, which has a more geographic uh, ability to separate itself from the rest of the world. And so I think one of the other important things to note here was Putin noting just how big the potential peace could be instead of nuclear war. You know, nuclear war is pretty much the absolute worst case scenario, but perhaps cooperation between such major superpowers like Russia, the US, God forbid China, uh, all that potential together directed uh, internally managed in an effective way could be as revolutionary and beneficial as nuclear war is detrimental. So uh, I wouldn't blame him for being bitter uh, that such an arrangement never never came to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of just the comment you made and we'll get back into it. Um, the comment you made on a previous podcast that the reason you want a multipolar world is not because you hate the U S but because you love the U S and, and, exactly. and, and Tucker that, said very similar in his explanation. He said that yeah. he's doing the interview to try and prevent world war three because he loves the United States, not anything to do with a particular adoration for Putin. Absolutely. All right, let's get back into it. Now, about NATO's expansion to the east. Well, we were promised no NATO to the east, not an inch to the east, as we were told. And then what? They said, well, it's not enshrined on paper, so we'll expand. So there were five waves of expansion, the Baltic states, the whole of Eastern Europe, and so on. And now I come to the main thing. They have come to the Ukraine, ultimately. In 2008, at the summit in Bucharest, they declared that the doors for Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO were open. Now about how decisions are made there. Germany, France seem to be against it, as well as some other European countries. But then, as it turned out, later, President Bush, and he's such a tough guy, a tough politician, as I was told later, he exerted pressure on us and we had to agree. It's ridiculous. It's like kindergarten. Where are the guarantees? What kindergarten is this? What kind of people are these? Who are they? You see, they were pressed. They agreed. And then they say, Ukraine won't be in the NATO, you know? I say, I don't know. I know you agreed in 2008. Why won't you agree in the future? Well, they pressed us then. I say, why won't they press you tomorrow? And you'll agree again. Well, it's nonsensical. Who's there to talk to? I just don't understand. We're ready to talk. But with whom? Where are the guarantees? None. So they started to develop the territory of Ukraine. Whatever is there, I have told you the background, how this territory developed, what kind of relations there were with Russia. Every second or third person there has always had some ties with Russia. And during the elections in already independent sovereign Ukraine, which gained its independence as a result of the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, it says that Ukraine is a neutral state. And in 2008, suddenly the doors or gates to NATO were open to it. Oh, come on. This is not how we agreed. Now, all the presidents that have come to power in Ukraine, they relied on electorate with a good attitude to Russia in one way or the other. This is the southeast of Ukraine. This is a large number of people. And it was very difficult to dissuade this electorate, which had a positive attitude towards Russia. Viktor Yanukovych came to power and how? The first time he won after President Kuchma, they organized a third round, which is not provided for in the constitution of Ukraine. This is a coup d'etat. Just imagine, someone in the United States wouldn't like the outcome. In 2014? Before that. 
No, this was before that, after President Kuchma, Viktor Yanukovych, won the elections. However, his opponents did not recognize that victory. The U.S. supported the opposition, and the third round was scheduled. What is this? This is a coup. The U.S. supported it, and the winner of the third round came to power. Imagine if in the U.S. something was not to disliking, and the third round of election, which the U.S. Constitution does not provide for, was organized. Nonetheless, it was done in Ukraine. Okay, Viktor Yushchenko, who was considered a pro-Western politician, came to power. Fine, we have built relations with him as well. He came to Moscow with visits. We visited Kiev. I visited too. We met in an informal setting. If he's pro-Western, so be it. It's fine. Let people do their job. The situation should have developed inside independent Ukraine itself. As a result of Kuchma's leadership, things got worse and Viktor Yanukovych came to power after all. Maybe he wasn't the best president and politician. I don't know. I don't want to give assessments. However, the issue of the association with the EU came up. We have always been lenient to this. Suit yourself. But when we read through the Treaty of Association, it turned out to be a problem for us, since we had a free trade zone and open customs borders with Ukraine, which under this association had to open its borders for Europe, which would have led to flooding of our market. We said, no, this is not going to work. We shall close our borders with Ukraine then. The customs borders, that is. Yanukovych started to calculate how much Ukraine was going to gain, how much to lose, and said to his European partners, I need more time to think before signing. The moment he said that, the opposition began to take destructive steps, which were supported by the West. It all came down to Maidan and a coup in Ukraine. So he did more trade with Russia than with the EU. Ukraine did. Of course. It's not even the matter of trade volume, although for the most part it is. It is the matter of cooperation size, which the entire Ukrainian economy was based on. The cooperation size between the enterprises were very close since the times of the Soviet Union. One enterprise there used to produce components to be assembled both in Russia and Ukraine and vice versa. They used to be very close ties. A coup d'etat was committed, although I shall not delve into details now, as I find doing it inappropriate, the US told us. Calm Yanukovych down and we will calm the opposition. Let the situation unfold in the scenario of a political settlement. We said, all right, agreed, let's do it this way. As the Americans requested, Yanukovych did use neither the armed forces nor the police, yet the armed opposition committed a coup in Kiev. What is that supposed to mean? Who do you think you are? I wanted to ask the then US leadership. With the backing of whom? With the backing of CIA, of course. The organization you wanted to join back in the day, as I understand. We should thank God they didn't let you in. Although, it is a serious organization. I understand. My former vis-a-vis... Wow. <laughs> I can't believe he called yeah, that out. Yeah, we definitely got to at least give a shout-out to that, that he's uh, calling out Tucker for wanting to have uh, worked with the CIA. Uh, you know, also not blaming him. You know, it's not like Putin has room to talk as a former uh, intelligence officer himself there. Yeah. Uh, for uh, the Soviet Union, uh, but still very funny that he uh, he dug into that. And I think earlier he also mentioned, you know, he was giving details about Tucker's background, uh, like that he studied like history in college and stuff, just these little factoids. And it definitely gives you the sense that uh, someone gave Putin a little background sheet on a Carlson before he ever took the interview, yeah, as would like, be hey, expected. He's like, hey, we looked into you before this. Yeah. Also, you know, interesting that he directly names the CIA as the backer of yeah. uh, the political instability and uh, regime change there in 2014 in Ukraine. Because uh, that is what I think he's ultimately going to cite here as the primary kind of inflection point um, at which he decided that conflict may be uh, unavoidable. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I just finished um, The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot about uh, Alan Dulles, the longest serving director of the CIA. And uh, it goes a little bit into you know, Iran and, and, um, the revolution in 1953 and, uh, 
just like as you learn more about the tactics that were used in, in dividing countries that they would have like protesters posing as um, uh, one side and then protesters posing as the Muslims and they, but they're all like CIA agents trying to like uh, get these sides riled up. Um, it, it appears like this same strategy is just repeated over and over again, whether it's in Guatemala or more recent um, revolutions, like in, in the Middle East. And then, um, I mean, all the signs are there in, in Ukraine. Uh, it's and, and, all we can always, uh, and we can always, I might, uh, you know, preview kind of what he said here in case we need to skip ahead um, at all for the sake of time. Um, but he he does mention specifically that there wouldn't have been necessarily the problems that there were if it had been just a natural sort of uh, truly democratic process in Ukraine that overthrew to a pro-Western, pro-EU government. It was the fact that it was so blatantly and needlessly bloodily overthrown uh, that really prompted Russia uh, to, in its mind, justifiably intervene in Crimea and the Donbass. Um, because, you know, there were civilians and law enforcement killed there in the uh, the Maidan revolution. Uh, you know, we look at something like January 6th, so incredibly big here in the U.S. as this big, giant threat to democracy. Um, and then we kind of shrug off events like this that were undoubtedly uh, foreignly influenced. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if people do want to get deeper into this history um, on, on my channel, I... Uh, had, like I mentioned earlier, Scott Horton has done, um, I, I think it was like a two hour talk uh, at the University of Montana here. It may have been three hours. And that's on my YouTube channel where he dives into the history and, and gives the evidence for the coup. Um, and then we've, of course, talked about it on our interviews as well. Uh, so I highly recommend those. But let's start it again. In the sense that I served in the first main directorate, Soviet Union's intelligence service. They have always been our opponents. A job is a job. Technically, they did everything right. They achieved their goal of changing the government. However, from a political standpoint, it was a colossal mistake. Surely, it was political leadership's miscalculation. They should have seen what it would evolve into. So, in 2008, the doors of NATO were open for Ukraine. In 2014, there was a coup. They started persecuting those who did not accept the coup. And it was indeed the coup. They created the threat to Crimea, which we had to take under our protection. They launched the war in Donbass in 2014 with the use of aircraft and artillery against civilians. This is when it all started. There is a video of aircraft attacking Donetsk from above. They launched a large-scale military operation, then another one. When they failed, they started to prepare the next one. All this against the background of military development of this territory and opening of NATO's doors. How could we not express concern over what was happening? From our side, this would have been a culpable negligence. That's what it would have been. It's just that the U.S. political leadership pushed us to the line we could not cross, because doing so could have ruined Russia itself. Besides, we could not leave our brothers in faith, in fact, a part of Russian people, in the face of this war machine. What was the, so that was eight years before the current conflict started. So what was the trigger for you? What was the moment where you decided you had to do this? Initially, it was the coup in Ukraine that provoked the conflict. By the way, back then the representatives of three European countries, Germany, Poland and France, arrived. They were the guarantors of the signed agreement between the government of Yanukovych and the opposition. I think that might be an important place to stop too. He says that the coup is what started the conflict. And it might be important to just bring up here that uh, a lot of people think the war started in uh, uh, two years ago. but. 
it was actually uh, it, the, the civil war within Ukraine started after the coup and there was violence within the Donetsk re region ever since. Um, so it, it is interesting that he, that he, cause I think Tucker asked the question about like, he was wondering what prompted him to invade, but he said the coup started the war. And that's, that's really interesting because just today, uh, Assistant U.S. Secretary of Defense Celeste Wallander uh, called it a reinvasion. She was along the same line of thinking that 2022 was a reinvasion in 2014, as in her mind, the very first Russian invasion. Whereas we can see Putin here uh, is along the same lines, but frames it along in the terms of Ukraine's government targeting civilians in the Donbass region in Crimea. And so Russia stepping in in response to Ukrainian military operations. And so you kind of had a, uh, you know, shot heard around the world who did it first situation there. The U.S. likes to point to little green men and the Russian military being directly involved. Russia points to natural uh, militia groups there in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, you can delve into the details of that and come to your own conclusions uh, based off what's out there. Uh, but at least here we're getting a perspective that we don't often get and a narrative that we don't often hear uh, which seems to be delivered uh, credibly. Uh, Tucker noted that it seems sincere. You know, he's clearly passionate about Russian history and these issues, um, yeah. even if his perspective is influenced by being the leader of uh, one of the countries involved. They signed it as a tourist. Despite that, the opposition committed a coup and all these countries pretended that they didn't remember that they were guarantors of the peaceful settlement. They just threw it in the stove right away and nobody recalls that. I don't know if the U.S. know anything about the agreement between the opposition and the authorities and its three guarantors who, instead of bringing this whole situation back in the political field, supported the coup. Although it was meaningless, believe me. Because President Yanukovych agreed to all conditions, he was ready to hold an early election which he had no chance of winning, frankly speaking. Everyone knew that. Then why the coup? Why the victims? Why threatening Crimea? Why launching an operation in Donbas? This I do not understand. That is exactly what the miscalculation is. CIA did its job to complete the coup. I think one of the deputy secretaries of state said that it cost a large sum of money, almost five billion. But the political mistake was colossal. Why would they have to do that? All this could have been done legally, without victims, without military action, without losing Crimea. We would have never considered to even lift a finger if it hadn't been for the bloody developments on Maidan. Because we agreed with the fact that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, our borders should be along the borders of former Union's republics. We agreed to that. But we never agreed to NATO's expansion, and moreover, we never agreed that Ukraine would be in NATO. We did not agree to NATO bases there without any discussion with us. For decades, we kept asking, don't do this, don't do that. And what triggered the latest events? Firstly, the current Ukrainian leadership declared that it would not implement the Minsk agreements, which had been signed, as you know, after the events of 2014 in Minsk, where the plan of peaceful settlement in Donbass was set forth. But no, the current Ukrainian leadership, foreign minister, all other officials, and then president himself said that they don't like anything about the Minsk agreements. In other words, they were not going to implement it. A year or a year and a half ago, former leaders of Germany and France said openly to the whole world that they indeed signed the Minsk agreements, but they never intended to implement them. They simply led us by the nose. Anyone for you to talk to? Did you call a U.S. President Secretary of State and say, if you keep militarizing Ukraine with NATO forces, this is going to get, this is going to be, a, we're going to act. We talked about this all the time. We addressed the United States and European countries' leadership to stop these developments immediately, to implement the Minsk agreements. 
Frankly speaking, I didn't know how we were going to do this, but I was ready to implement them. These agreements were complicated for Ukraine. They included lots of elements of those Donbass territories' independence. That's true. However, I was absolutely confident, and I'm saying this to you now. I honestly believe that if we managed to convince the residents of Donbass, and we had to work hard to convince them to return to the Ukrainian statehood, then gradually the wounds would start to heal. When this part of territory reintegrated itself into common social environment, when the pensions and social benefits were paid again, all the people... I think that's an important uh, point to note there, because I'm not sure I've heard that from him before, where he says he's fully confident that with enough work, that those eastern republics of Ukraine there in the Donbass could have remained part of Ukraine, could have healed the divides between the Ukrainian government, which was seeking to assert its national identity, eliminate the Russian language, kind of crack down on the old Russian-tied Soviet culture and emerge their own state, but that that could have been successfully negotiated, uh, perhaps off the back of something like the Minsk uh, Accords. Um, But alas, that's not how it worked out. And once again, you see that theme here with Putin, where there's a, you know, maybe naive and idealistic vision of international cooperation and peacemaking uh, that then never seems to pan out, not because of a lack of trying on Russia's part, but because of a lack of willingness to follow through on the Western part. And of course, I'm sure a lot of Western leaders would inverse that and say that it's Russia who prevented real international peace and security. Um, But as is uh, laid out clearly in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. And I think it's you know, unfair to write off Russia's attempts at peace in an international order while wholeheartedly supporting the U.S.'s vision of peace in an international order, because true peace would come from reconciling those systems when they are in uh, critical conflict like they seem to be now. Yeah, absolutely. Pieces would gradually fall into place. No, nobody wanted that. Everybody wanted to resolve the issue by military force only. But we could not let that happen. And the situation got to the point when the Ukrainian side announced, no, we will not do anything. They also started preparing for military action. It was they who started the war in 2014. Our goal is to stop this war. And we did not start this war in 2022. This is an attempt to stop it. Do you think you've stopped it now? I mean, have you achieved your aims? No, we haven't achieved our aims yet, because one of them is denazification. This means the prohibition of all kinds of neo-Nazi movements. This is one of the problems that we discussed during the negotiation process, which ended in Istanbul early this year. And it was not our initiative, because we were told by the Europeans, in particular, that it was necessary to create conditions for the final signing of the documents. My counterparts in France and Germany said, how can you imagine them signing a treaty with a gun to their heads? The troops should be pulled back from Kiev. I said, all right, we withdrew the troops from Kiev. As soon as we pulled back our troops from Kiev, our Ukrainian negotiators immediately threw all our agreements reached in Istanbul into the bin and got prepared for a long-standing armed confrontation with the help of the United States and its satellites in Europe. That is how the situation has developed. And that is how it looks now. But, but what is, my what is denazification? What would that mean? That is what I want to talk about right now. It is a very important issue. Denazification. After gaining independence, Ukraine began to search, as some Western analysts say, its identity. And it came up with nothing better than to build this identity upon some false heroes who collaborated with Hitler. 
I have already said that in the early 19th century, when the theorists of independence and sovereignty of Ukraine appeared, they assumed that an independent Ukraine should have very good relations with Russia. But due to the historical development, those territories were part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Poland, where Ukrainians were persecuted and treated quite brutally as well as were subject to cruel behavior. There were also attempts to destroy their identity. All this remained in the memory of the people. When World War II broke out, part of this extremely nationalist elite collaborated with Hitler, believing that he would bring them freedom. The German troops, even the SS troops, made Hitler's collaborators do the dirtiest work of exterminating the Polish and Jewish population. Hence this brutal massacre of the Polish and Jewish population, as well as the Russian population too. This was led by the persons who are well known, Bandera, Shekevich. It was those people who were made national heroes, that is the problem. And we are constantly told that nationalism and neo-Nazism exist in other countries as well. Yes, they are seedlings, but we approve them, and other countries fight against them. But Ukraine is not the case. These people have been made into national heroes in Ukraine. Monuments to those people have been erected. They are displayed on flags. Their names are shouted by crowds that walk with torches, as it was in Nazi Germany. These were people who exterminated. And it's interesting to have him actually name Bandera. You don't hear that at all in the West. Um, it's probably the first time that that many of Tucker's listeners have even heard that history. And this is definitely one of those areas that we heard more about early on in the uh, you know Russia-Ukraine conflict was this issue of so-called denazification. And I think it's actually a very fair question from Tucker to ask what exactly that looks like. You know, what is the practical aim and actual policy that you'd use to achieve this? Uh, because we often question, rightfully so, the U.S. government to have some sort of concrete proposal. They've yet to come up with uh, seemingly any uh, comprehensive long-term plan. But we should continue to demand it, not only of the U.S., but of Russia. And so good on Tucker for asking about that. Uh, because as we've touched on a lot in previous podcasts, so I won't linger on it, but Russia, really a core part of its identity is its post-World War II victory. You know, really... Uh, reveling in its victory as the Soviet Union over Nazi Germany because of the death toll and the civilian toll in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe is really unparalleled by the Western Front. Um, there's a lot of great videos out there uh, that break this down. Um, but, you know, Russia calls it the Great Patriotic War. And when you go to Russia, there's monuments to World War II figures and moments all over the place. It's a huge part of their culture. And so sometimes people question, you know, how could a power oftentimes itself portrayed as like a right-wing authoritarian government, how could that be at so much odds with, you know, not national socialism, Nazism? And the reason is that Soviet historical legacy and the, the cost and self-sacrifice that Russians take pride in as it relates to the Second World War. So hopefully that gives some uh, perspective on why Putin takes this issue seemingly so seriously. But it's a fair question for him to have to answer because you can't, as we all know well, eliminate an idea. Um, right. It's, it's, it's just impossible. So you have to have something more concrete. Yeah. I mean, like I try to remind, like when I'm talking to my friends about this, this conflict, um, it's, it's not that we're saying like we're, we're pro Putin or anything like that. Like he's just as, you know, powerful of a figure, especially from a libertarian perspective, he's just as tyrannical in my view and on the question of foreign policy i always i always try to put myself in the position of 
a Russian citizen and, and ask myself what I would think about Putin's policies. And um, like you said, argument by analogy, um, it, when, when Bush says that we want to eradicate um, some idea in the Middle East, uh, we, we should ask what that policy actually looks like. You know, we, we have to contend with insurgent math. And when you when you try to bomb weddings, um, it, it tends to actually recruit uh, these these people. And, and it's it's the martyr effect. Um, and like the Middle East, I think even if Russia were to be you know as successful as one can be, you would have blowback for for years, for decades, especially with the amount of arms pumped in. So, well, and that's I mean that's a really huge concern with you know the West funding these people too. Is like if if we uh, and turning on Ukraine and and the American people end up um, opposing this war altogether, we could see some blowback. Um, just in the sense that a lot of these uh, Nazis or white supremacists might actually end up funding some of our uh, uh, enemies. And I think having Ukraine be uh, one of the like, uh, is, aren't they like the highest in like trafficking um, weapons and stuff like that? Like it's possible. Yeah, the Pentagon claims they can keep a pretty good track, but there's a fair number of reports from around Europe about arms, small arms, things that go under the radar. Uh, just yeah. trickling on out. Not not to mention other, you know, explosives, grenades, mines, uh, anti-armor stuff, which can all be put uh, to use for terroristic purposes. So uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm sure, once again, even, even if Russia controls some territory there in eastern Ukraine, um, there's going to be insurgents, undoubtedly. Um, did you and a lot of them will be using U.S. arms. Did you ever see the stories about... Um... Uh, some of some of the arms going to Ukraine, U.S. arms going to Ukraine, ending up in in the hands of Hamas. Um, is there any veracity to those claims? You know, I haven't looked into them uh, all that carefully. I've seen those reports. Um, I've seen them also talking about you know the arms from the U.S. getting into like organized crime groups across Western Europe. Um, but as someone who's not on the ground, I can't necessarily confirm it. Um, but it's, it's one of those logical things where when you flood that much weaponry into any zone in the world, some of it's going to leak out, uh, for nefarious purposes because, uh, arms bring money. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get back into it. Bulls, Jews, and Russians. It is necessary to stop this practice and prevent the dissemination of this concept. I say that Ukrainians are part of the one Russian people. They say, no, we are a separate people. Okay, fine. If they consider themselves a separate people, they have the right to do so, but not on the basis of Nazism, the Nazi ideology. Would you be satisfied with the territory that you have now? I will finish answering the question. You just asked the question about neo-Nazism and denazification. Look. The president of I find it interesting that it's not like the most cordial of interviews, like like the and CIA Putin, comment at the beginning and then just like the way they're hand, the way they're talking now. Putin definitely there sidesteps several questions by continuing on with whatever his answer is. Yeah. And I'd imagine some of that, you know, this is, you know, KGB trained power dynamics in the conversation, you know, him trying to keep the control and the leash on. Um, but Tucker, Tucker definitely seems to be doing. Uh, at least in uh, making an effort to push back and get some good yeah. questions in. In visited Canada, the story is well known, but being silenced in the Western countries. The Canadian Parliament introduced a man who, as the Speaker of the Parliament said, fought against the Russians during the World War II. 
well, who fought against the Russians during the World War II, Hitler and his accomplices. It turned out that this man served in the SS troops. He personally killed Russians, Poles, and Jews. The SS troops consisted of Ukrainian nationalists who did this dirty work. The president of Ukraine stood up with the entire parliament of Canada and applauded this man. How can this be imagined? The president of Ukraine himself, by the way, is a Jew by nationality. Really, my question is, what do you do about it? I mean, Hitler's been dead for 80 years. Nazi Germany no longer exists. And so, true. And so, I think what you're saying is you want to extinguish or at least control Ukrainian nationalism. But how? How do you do that? Listen to me. Your question is very subtle. And I can tell you what I think. Do not take offense. Of course. This question appears to be subtle. It is quite pesky. You say Hitler has been dead for so many years, 80 years. But his example lives on. People who exterminated Jews, Russians, and Poles are alive. And the president, the current president of today's Ukraine, applauds him in the Canadian parliament, gives a standing ovation. Can we say that we have completely uprooted this ideology if what we see is happening today? That is what denazification is in our understanding. We have to get rid of those people who maintain this concept and support this practice and try to preserve it. That is what denazification is. That is what we mean. Right. My question was a little more specific. It was, of course, not a defense of Nazis, neo or otherwise. It was a practical question. You don't control the entire country. You don't control Kiev. You don't seem like you want to. So how, how do you eliminate a culture or an ideology or feelings or a view of history in a country that you don't control? What do you do about that? You know, as strange as it may seem to you, during the negotiations at Istanbul, we did agree that we have it all in writing. Neo-Nazism would not be cultivated in Ukraine, including that it would be prohibited at the legislative level. Mr. Carson, we agreed on that. This, it turns out, can be done during the negotiation process. And there's nothing humiliating for Ukraine as a modern civilized state. Is any state allowed to promote Nazism? It is not, is it? Oh. That is it. Technically, the USA, you know, first event. Um, will there be the talks, and why haven't there been talks about resolving the conflict in Ukraine? Peace talks. And it is, it is crazy. He's, he's really trying to push him on this. And I think like all credit goes to Tucker for, I mean, th this is just like grade A journalism right here. Uh, like he is really it's trying a, it's to push a great line of questioning. Yeah. And it's one yeah. that I don't think a lot of mainstream of CNN or MSNBC got this interview. I don't think they would push that hard um, on Putin in the first place, let alone on the subject of Ukrainian neo-Nazism. Tucker's bold enough to recognize that that's an issue in Ukraine, which a lot of pundits won't, but simultaneously bold enough to ask Putin a very valid, especially from a libertarian standpoint, question about how you eliminate an ideology using, uh, you know, states' uh, violence. So, or at yeah, least there not violence and extended powers. When you compare this to interviews in the past, like other than Oliver Stone's, of course, um, with like, let's say, uh, Charlie Rose, like Charlie Rose's interview with Putin, um, he's like asking him questions where it's like the, like the, uh, implication, like the tone is he's, he's trying to accuse him of being a dictator. And here it's like, actually it's important pressure that he's putting on him. Like, it's not, it's not like some narrative that he's trying to craft around Putin being like this, um, enemy of the West who's hacking into our elections or whatever. He's like, actually like, you don't even control your country. How is this, how is this policy going to be effective? He's like really hitting at the, the heart of the matter, I think. Absolutely.
They had been. They reached a very high stage of coordination of positions in a complex process, but still they were almost finalized. But after we withdrew our troops from Kiev, as I have already said, the other side threw away all these agreements and obeyed the instructions of Western countries, European countries, and the United States to fight Russia to the bitter end. Moreover, the president of Ukraine has legislated a ban on negotiating with Russia. He signed a decree forbidding everyone to negotiate with Russia. But how are we going to negotiate if he forbade himself and everyone to do this? We know that he is putting forward some ideas about the settlement, but in order to agree on something, we need to have a dialogue. Is that not right? Well, but you wouldn't be speaking to the Ukrainian president, you'd be speaking to the American president. When was the last time you spoke to Joe Biden? I cannot remember when I talked to him. I do not remember. We can look it up. You don't remember? No. Why? Do I have to remember everything? I have my own things to do. We have domestic political affairs. Well, he's funding the war that you're fighting, so I would think that would be memorable. Well, yes, he funds, but I talked to him before the special military operation, of course. And I said to him then, by the way, I will not go into details, I never do, but I said to him then, I believe that you are making a huge mistake of historic proportions by supporting everything that is happening there in Ukraine by pushing Russia away. I told him, told him repeatedly, by the way. I think that would be correct if I stop here. What did he say? Ask him, please. It is easier for you. You are a citizen of the United States. Go and ask him. It is not appropriate for me to comment on our conversation. But, but, but you haven't spoken to him since before February of 2022. No, we haven't spoken. Certain contacts are being maintained, though. Speaking of which, do you remember what I told you about my proposal to work together on a missile defense? Here, what was that? Uh, so that's pretty concerning that the, the heads of two nuclear powers haven't spoke in two years. Yeah. It's such a consequential relationship for the globe um, that communication is the minimum we should ask for. Um, and so I don't know if, you know, that's both of them just having a cordial silence or one side rejecting the other's, uh, you know, calls. But either well, way, it doesn't, doesn't bode well for security. Yeah, I know very early on, um, Biden was saying things like, I don't want to talk to him right now. Like, I remember... Uh, uh, seeing a clip, it, it was a headline where it was quoting Biden and he said, I don't want to talk to Putin right now, as if like they're children and not global leaders. Yeah. Hopefully that changes. That's we'll see. Yeah. I wish Biden yeah. would sit down for an interview with Tucker to respond to all of them. Least, but um, given his mental slips, you know, revealed today in the one report, his awful press conference where he called the uh, president of Egypt, the president of Mexico. I'm not sure if he caught that. I did, yeah. uh, Biden's just on a downhill decline. Um, and so to see Putin give an interview, even where he rambles on and kind of dodges about at some points, um, it's definitely a stark contrast leader to leader. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine really any Western leader um, or anyone from the United States that is uh, any president other than maybe Donald Trump sitting down for a long form interview like this with a foreign journalist. Yeah. Um, it's hard to imagine. All of them are safe and sound, thank God. The former president, Condoleezza, is safe and sound. And I think Mr. Gates and the current director of the intelligence agency, Mr. Burns, the then ambassador to Russia, in my opinion, are very yes. successful ambassador. They were all witnesses to these conversations. Ask them. Same here. If you are interested in what Mr. President Biden responded to me, ask him. At any rate, I talked to him about it. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested, but from the outside. Really quick. It's fascinating that these characters keep coming up and most Americans don't know who Gates or Burns are. Like these are yeah, figures if you drop that Gates, are... Burns, uh, Newland, any of these names in there that would come up on any conversation about recent US, Ukraine, Russia policy. Um, they're names that are doing so much of the wheeling and dealing 
uh, but have very little public facing presence, which I think is part of what Tucker has criticized here in terms of those individuals having much more power than an elected official. Yeah, and we I, like. Although it's cool, he called Burns good at his job. Uh, that's just interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is fascinating, and like you said earlier, uh, Burns he is the author of the Yet Means Yet memo, where he actually said that that Ukraine was a red line. I, was it leaked in two thousand eight or was it written in two thousand eight? I always forget that. I think I think it was written in two thousand eight and leaked later. Um, in yeah, WikiLeaks stuff. But I mean, like. Like in that mem memo, it's proof that Burns, this character who's been around since 2008, um, was aware that Ukraine was a red line and ad admittance of Ukraine into NATO was a red line for uh, Russia. And, and here Putin is mentioning Burns and, and Gates and Newland throughout the entire interview thus far. That's something to note too. Putin's been in his role since the year two, you know, January 1st, 2000, the turn of the millennium there. So that's 24 years of having been at the helm of this, as opposed to the rotating partisan cycle of U.S. Uh, diplomatic staff. Right. And he's mentioned that in the past that the presidents change, but the policy doesn't. I, I think yeah. it's actually a quote from the Stone interviews. Side, it seems like this could devolve or evolve into something that brings the entire world into conflict and could um, initiate some a nuclear launch. And so why don't you just call Biden and say, let's work this out? What's there to work out? It's very simple. I repeat, we have contacts through various agencies. I will tell you what we are saying on this matter and what we are conveying to the US leadership. If you really want to stop fighting, you need to stop supplying weapons. It will be over within a few weeks. That's it. And then we can agree on some terms. Before you do that, stop. What's easier? Why would I call him? What should I talk to him about? Or beg him for what? And, and what message did he give You're going to deliver such and such weapons to Ukraine? Oh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Please don't. What is there to talk about? Do you think NATO is worried about this becoming a global war or a nuclear conflict? At least that's what they're talking about. And they're trying to intimidate their own population with an imaginary Russian threat. This is an obvious fact. And thinking people, not Philistines, but thinking people, analysts, those who are engaged in real politics, just smart people understand perfectly well that this is a fake. They're trying to fuel the Russian threat. The threat I think you're referring to is a Russian invasion of Poland, Latvia, expansionist behavior. Is, can you imagine a scenario where you sent Russian troops to Poland? Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia, or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. It's just threat-mongering. Well, the argument, I know you know this, is that, well, he invaded Ukraine. He has territorial aims across the continent. And you're saying unequivocally you don't. It is absolutely out of the question. You just don't have to be any kind of analyst. It goes against common sense to get involved in some kind of a global war. And a global war will bring all humanity to the brink of destruction. It's obvious. There are certainly means of deterrence. They have been scaring everyone with us all along. Tomorrow Russia will use tactical nuclear weapons. Tomorrow Russia will use that. No, the day after tomorrow. So what? In order to extort additional money from US taxpayers and European taxpayers in the confrontation with Russia in the Ukrainian theater of war. The goal is to weaken Russia as much as possible. One of uh, our senior United States senators from the state of New York, Chuck Schumer, said... And like... Wasn't it Lloyd Austin who who said that the U.S. policy was to weaken Russia so that 
they could never do the type of thing that they did in Ukraine ever again. Isn't that the actual stated policy? They've used that line on several occasions, but increasingly um, we're seeing them talk about the benefits domestically to the U.S. And I think that's something that Putin was also kind of touching on there, um, where they're using the threat of escalated conflict with Russia as a sort of fear mongering technique to extract more funding from the U.S. taxpayers, not necessarily to give to Ukraine, but to line the pockets of the military industrial complex, or I think they yeah. call it the defense industrial base. They like calling it now. Say that, yeah. um, but a huge percentage of the money that we're giving Ukraine um, isn't actually necessarily going to Ukraine. A lot of it's going to re-equipping U.S. stocks, going to U.S. military contractors to get new equipment for us. So not only are we weakening Russia by extending this proxy conflict in Ukraine, but we're also using it as an excuse to get rid of our own old weapons and arms and pay and try and reinvigorate the defense industrial base uh, with new investments for new goodies. Yeah. Yesterday, I believe that we have to continue to fund the Ukrainian effort or U.S. soldiers, citizens could wind up fighting there. How do you assess that? This is a provocation, and a cheap provocation at that. I do not understand why American soldiers should fight in Ukraine. There are mercenaries from the United States there. The bigger number of mercenaries comes from Poland, with mercenaries from the United States in second place, and mercenaries from Georgia in third place. Well, if somebody has the desire to send regular troops, that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of a very serious global conflict. This is obvious. Do the United States need this? What for? Thousands of miles away from your national territory. Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than $33 trillion. You have nothing better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine? Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia, make an agreement, already understanding the situation that is developing today, realizing that Russia will fight for its interests to the end? And realizing this, actually return to common sense, start respecting our country and its interests, and look for certain solutions. It seems to me that this is much smarter and more rational. Who blew up Nord Stream? <laughs> you for sure. Right. I was busy that day. <laughs> Nate, it, do you have... Do you have... <laughs> Uh, I did not blow up Nord Stream. Uh, thank you, though. You personally may have an alibi, but the CIA has no such alibi. Do, do you have evidence that NATO or the CIA did it? You know, I won't get into details, but people always say in such cases, look for someone who is interested. But in this case, we should not only look for someone who is interested, but also for someone who has capabilities. Because there may be many people interested, but not all of them are capable of sinking to the bottom of the Baltic Sea and carrying out this explosion. These two components should be connected. Who is interested and who is capable of doing it? But I'm confused. I mean, that's the biggest act of industrial terrorism ever. And it's the largest emission of CO2 in, in history. Okay, so if you had evidence, and presumably given your security services, rental services, you would, that NATO, the US, CIA, the West did this, why wouldn't you present it and win a propaganda victory? <laughs> in the war of propaganda, it is very difficult to defeat the United States because the United States controls all the world's media and many European media. The ultimate beneficiary of the biggest European media are American financial institutions. Don't you know that? So it is possible to get involved in this work but it is cost prohibitive, so to speak. We can simply shine the spotlight on our sources of information and we will not achieve results. It is clear to the whole world what happened and even American analysts talk about it directly. It's true. Yes, I, but, but here's a question you may be able to answer. You worked in Germany, famously. Um, the Germans clearly know that their NATO partner did this, but they, and it damaged their economy greatly. It may never recover. Why are they being silent about it? That's very confusing to me. Why wouldn't the Germans say something about it? 
This also confuses me. But today's German leadership is guided by the interests of the collective West rather than its national interests. Otherwise, it is difficult to explain the logic of their action or inaction. After all, it is not only about Nord Stream 1, which was blown up, and the Nord Stream 2 was damaged. But one pipe is safe and sound, and gas can be supplied to Europe through it. But Germany does not open it. We are ready, please. There's another route through Poland, called Yamal Europe, which also allows for a large flow. Poland has closed it, but Poland pecks from the German hand. It receives money from the pan-European funds, and Germany is the main donor to these pan-European funds. Germany feeds Poland to a certain extent, and they close the route to Germany. Why? I don't understand. Ukraine, to which the Germans supply weapons and give money. Germany is the second sponsor of the United States in terms of financial aid to Ukraine. There are two gas routes through Ukraine. They simply close one route, the Ukrainians. Open the second route and please get gas from Russia. They do not open it. Why don't the Germans say? Look guys, we give you money and weapons. Open up the valve, please. Let the gas from Russia pass through for us. We're buying liquefied gas at exorbitant prices in Europe, which brings the level of our competitiveness and economy in general down to zero. So you want us to give you money? Let us have the decent existence to make money for our economy, because this is where the money we give you comes from. They refuse to do so. Why? Ask them. That is what is like in their heads. Those are highly incompetent people. Well, maybe the world is breaking into two hemispheres, one with cheap energy, the other without. And I want to ask you that. If, if we're now a multipolar world, obviously we are. Can you describe the blocks of alliances? Who, who is in each side, do you think? Listen, you have said that the world is breaking into two hemispheres. A human brain is divided into two hemispheres. One is responsible for one type of activities, the other one is more about creativity and so on. But it is still one and the same head. The world should be a single whole. Security should be shared rather than meant for the golden billion. That is the only scenario where the world could be stable, sustainable and predictable. Until then, while the head is split into parts, it is an illness, a serious adverse condition. It is a period of severe disease that the world is going through now. I love that comparison there, that expansion of the Leviathan body politic metaphor from a national level all the way up to an international one. Uh, that comparison of the, you know, the, the global West and the global East, so to speak, being like two hemispheres of the brain, perhaps distinct in their function and their operations and unique features, but ultimately part of an integrated whole that works best in a sort of a symbiotic relationship. And so I just thought yeah. that was interesting that he takes this body politic metaphor that's often used on smaller scales and has extended it all the way up to the global community. Um, I'm not entirely sure that, you know, it's as simple as, you know, two hemispheres, two brains of a, of a global consciousness. Um, but I think that there's some metaphorical merit in thinking about it in those terms. It's also uh, very significant that in probably the largest, like the, the most or, or the biggest interview of our time, uh, Tucker just declared that we actually are a multipolar world now. Uh, we, we live in a multipolar world hard to deny, you know, even all the UN officials um, are hailing the multipolar world. Uh, the US is just having to contend with it. And I think it's a point Putin has brought up and brings up later on in the interview as well, is that yeah, is. the change and progress in the in the world is absolutely unstoppable. The question is whether the US will try and force the world to adapt to it and fail, or whether it'll take the steps necessary uh, to change itself to those uh, inevitable circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's the question of the uh, Thucydides trap, whether a, a waxing, if there's a waning and a waxing power, whether the waning power will inevitably go to war uh, to try to preserve its 
its power. And the reason I think it's just so significant that, that Tucker mentioned that, that, that we are living in a multipolar world is that the West is so insulated from it, at least in the United States. I'm sure Europe, Europeans are, are very aware of this, especially as they're getting the, uh, the brunt of the economic forces probably earlier than we are. Um, like the what the U.S. is very insulated, and and they probably aren't even thinking in terms of uh, unipolarity or multipolarity. So it, it's just it, it's I think it's a very good thing that that Tucker just brought that up. Yeah. But I think that thanks to honest journalism, this work is akin to work of the doctors. This could somehow be remedied. Well, let's just give one example: the U.S. dollar, which has kind of united the world uh, in a lot of ways. Maybe not to your advantage, but certainly ours. Is that going away as the reserve currency, the, the, the universally accepted currency? How have sanctions, do you think, changed the dollar's place in the world? You know, to use the dollar as a tool of foreign policy struggle is one of the biggest strategic mistakes made by the U.S. political leadership. The dollar is the cornerstone of the United States power. I think everyone understands very well that no matter how many dollars are printed, they are quickly dispersed all over the world. Inflation in the United States is minimal. It's about 3 or 3.4 percent, which is, I think, totally acceptable for the U.S. But they won't stop printing. What does the debt of $33 trillion tell us about? It is about the emission. Nevertheless, it is the main weapon used by the United States to preserve its power across the world. As soon as the political leadership decided to use the U.S. dollar as a tool of political struggle, a blow was dealt to this American power. I would not like to use any strong language, but it is a stupid thing to do and a grave mistake. Look at what is going on in the world. Even the United States allies are now downsizing their dollar reserves. Seeing this, everyone starts looking for ways to protect themselves. But the fact that the United States applies restrictive measures to certain countries, such as placing restrictions on transactions, freezing assets, etc., causes great concern and sends a signal to the whole world. What did we have here? Until 2022, about 80% of Russian foreign trade transactions were made in US dollars and euros. US dollars accounted for approximately 50% of our transactions with third countries, while currently it is down to 13%. It wasn't us who banned the use of the U.S. dollar. We had no such intention. It was decision of the United States to restrict our transactions in U.S. dollars. I think it is complete foolishness from the point of view of the interest of the United States itself and its taxpayers, as it damages the U.S. economy, undermines the power of the United States across the world. By the way, our transactions in yuan accounted for about 3%. It's common culture. I just wanted to stop it there for a second about the... Um, uh, dollar. Um, I, I made the point that, and and it's a point that many libertarians make that foreign policy and, and monetary policy is inextricably linked. And um, I mean, it was pretty clear after the United States placed sanctions on on Russia uh, that that people were going to move away from the dollar and that it backfired. Um, you know, and it's interesting that Putin noted that you know although Russia may have already been on a trajectory of increasing its trade and. Yuan and in rubles, that it was very, very uh, uh, dominant uh, trade-wise, the dollar was in Russia, and that perhaps that U.S. actions only accelerated a process, they probably would have been economically and politically better off having had play out over time. Like we said, if a multipolar world and economy is inevitable, de-dollarization to a certain extent is as well. 
but it's been blown out of proportion how bad the collapse is by the U.S. linking uh, its dollar to its uh, foreign policy blunders. Yeah, and he seemed to also be making an, an argument kind of similar to Bastiat, or a quote that's been attributed to Bastiat that when when goods cross borders, um, troops don't. And he, he's kind of making an argument for peace there that the the economy should be linked. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to, to hear a foreign leader make that argument. And it's also interesting to know something that he talked about earlier uh, on this point, how a lot of the objection to the EU deal with Ukraine was that Ukraine and EU would have open trade flow. And because Russia and Ukraine have open trade flow, that it would flood Russia's market with outside European yeah. uh, products. And so that, you know, it's kind of a protectionist argument. I don't know if that would have collapsed the Russian economy and it truly was like an existential economic issue, but one could theorize and wonder if that trade had been allowed to open up, um, if indeed we had seen a giant flow of trade between Russia and Europe through Ukraine, if that would have perhaps prevented conflict, if only by tying Europe and Russia closer, even if the U.S. is kind of left out of that uh, blossom of trade. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Yeah. Here it goes again, through an euphemistic form, but it is still the same boogeyman story. The cooperation with China keeps increasing. The pace at which China's cooperation with Europe is growing is higher and greater than that of the growth of Chinese-Russian cooperation. Ask Europeans, aren't they afraid? They might be, I don't know. But they are still trying to access China's market at all costs, especially now that they are facing economic problems. Chinese businesses are also exploring the European market. Do Chinese businesses have small presence in the United States? Yes, the political decisions are such that they are trying to limit their cooperation with China. It is to your own detriment, Mr. Tucker, that you are limiting cooperation with China. You are hurting yourself. It is a delicate matter, and there are no silver bullet solutions, just as it is with the dollar. So, before introducing any illegitimate sanctions, illegitimate in terms of the Charter of the United Nations, one should think very carefully. For decision makers, this appears to be a problem. So you said a moment ago that the world would be a lot better if it weren't broken into competing alliances, if there was cooperation globally. One of the reasons you don't have that is because the current American administration is dead set against you. Do you think if there were a new administration after Joe Biden that you would be able to reestablish communication with the U.S. government? Or does it not matter who the president is? I will tell you, but let me finish the previous thought. We, together with my colleague and friend, President Xi Jinping, set a goal to reach $200 billion of mutual trade with China this year. We have exceeded this level. According to our figures, our bilateral trade with China totals already $230 billion, and the Chinese statistics says it is $240 billion. One more important thing, our trade is well-balanced, mutually complementary in high-tech, energy, scientific research and development. It is very balanced. As for BRICS, where Russia took over the presidency this year, the BRICS countries are, by and large, developing very rapidly. Look, if memory serves me right, back in 1992, the share of the G7 countries in the world economy amounted to 47%, whereas in 2022, it was down to, I think, a little over 30%. The BRICS countries accounted for only 16% in 1992, but now their share is greater than that of the G7. It has nothing to do with the events in Ukraine. This is due to the trends of global development and world economy, as I mentioned just now. And this is inevitable. This will keep happening. It is like the rise of the sun. You cannot prevent the sun from rising. You have to adapt to it. How do the United States adapt? With the help of force, sanctions, pressure, bombings, and use of armed forces. This is about self-conceit. 
your political establishment does not understand that the world is changing under objective circumstances. And in order to preserve your level, even if someone aspires, pardon me, to the level of dominance, you have to make the right decisions in a competent and timely manner. Such brutal actions, including with regard to Russia and, say, other countries, are counterproductive. This is an obvious fact. It has already become evident. You just asked me if another leader comes and changes something. It is not about the leader. It is not about the personality of a particular person. I had a very good relationship with, uh, say, Bush. I know that in the United States, he was portrayed as some kind of a country boy who does not understand much. I assure you that this is not the case. I think he made a lot of mistakes with regard to Russia, too. I told you about 2008 and the decision in Bucharest to open the NATO's doors to for Ukraine and so on. That happened during his presidency. He actually exercised pressure on the Europeans. But in general, on a personal human level, I had a very good relationship with him. He was no worse than any other American or Russian or European politician. I assure you, he understood what he was doing as well as others. I had such a personal relationship with Trump as well. It is not about the personality of the leader. It is about the elite's mindset. If the idea of domination at any cost, based also on forceful actions, dominates the American society, nothing will change. It will only get worse. But if, in the end, one comes to the awareness that the world has been changing due to the objective circumstances and that one should be able to adapt to them in time, using the advantages that the U.S. still has today, then perhaps something may change. Look, China's economy has become the first economy in the world in purchasing power parity. In terms of volume, it overtook the U.S. a long time ago. The U.S.A. comes second, then India, one and a half billion people, and then Japan, with Russia in the fifth place. Russia was the first economy in Europe last year, despite all the sanctions and restrictions. Is it normal from your point of view? Sanctions, restrictions, impossibility of payments in dollars, being cut off from SWIFT services, sanctions against our ships carrying oil, sanctions against airplanes, sanctions in everything, everywhere. The largest number of sanctions in the world which are applied are applied against Russia. And we have become Europe's first economy during this time. The tools that the U.S. uses don't work. Well, one has to think about what to do. If this realization comes to the ruling elites, then yes, then the first person of the state will act in anticipation of what the voters and the people who make decisions at various levels expect from this person. Then maybe something will change. You're describing two different systems. You say that the leader acts in the interest of the voters, but you also say these decisions are not made by the leader, they're made by the ruling classes. <coughs> You've run this country for so long, You've known all these American presidents. What are those power centers in the United States, do you think? Like who actually makes the decisions? I don't know. America is a complex country, conservative on one hand, rapidly changing on the other. It's not easy for us to sort it all out. Who makes decisions in the elections? Is it possible to understand this when each state has its own legislation? Each state regulates itself? Someone can be excluded from elections at the state level. It is a two-stage electoral system. It is very difficult for us to understand it. Certainly, there are two parties that are dominant, the Republicans and the Democrats. And within this party system, the centers that make decisions, that prepare decisions. Then, look, why, in my opinion, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, such an erroneous, crude, completely unjustified policy of pressure was pursued against Russia? After all, this is a policy of pressure. NATO expansion, support for the separatists and caucuses, creation of a missile defense system. These are all elements of pressure. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Then, dragging Ukraine into NATO is all about pressure, pressure, pressure. Why? I think, among other things, because excessive production capacities were created. During the confrontation with the Soviet Union, there were many centers created and specialists on the Soviet Union who could not do anything else. They convinced the political leadership that it is necessary to continue chiseling Russia, to try to break it up, to create on this territory several quasi-state entities 
and to subdue them in undivided form to use their combined potential for the future struggle with China. This is a mistake, including the excessive potential of those who worked for the confrontation with the Soviet Union. It is necessary to get rid of this. There should be new, fresh forces, people who look into the future and understand what is happening in the world. Look at how Indonesia is developing. 600 million people. Where can we get away from that? Nowhere. We just have to assume that Indonesia will enter. It is already in the club of the world's leading economies, no matter who likes it or dislikes it. Yes, we understand and are aware that in the United States, despite all the economic problems, the situation is still normal with the economy growing decently. The GDP is growing by 2.5%, if I'm not mistaken. But if we want to ensure the future, then we need to change our approach to what is changing. As I already said, the world would nevertheless change, regardless of how the developments in Ukraine end. The world is changing. In the United States themselves, experts are writing that the United States are nonetheless gradually changing their position in the world. It is your experts who write that. I just read them. The only question is how this would happen, painfully and quickly, or gently and gradually. And this is written by people who are not anti-American. They simply follow global development trends. That's it. And in order to assess them and change policies, we need people who think, look forward, can analyze and recommend certain decisions at the level of political leaders. I just have to ask you. Oh, that was very interesting. I, I think there's a real difference there that a lot of American viewers might uh, feel is refreshing or perhaps they'll feel confused by, which is this kind of blatant political realism or view from Putin as a self-interested leader on behalf of Russia as a country. Because when we hear a lot of our leaders, especially the figurehead ones, talk about our foreign policy, it's very much in the idealistic, uh, you know, idealist school of foreign policy, where their values and morals and ethics first and realist geopolitical concerns second. And when you hear Putin talk so matter-of-factly, I think it really speaks to his realist tendencies when he talks about, you know, Indonesia, 600 million people. How are you going to get away from that? That's such like a, a, a matter of fact to the point reality. It kind of like when he talked about so uh, matter of factly about, no, well, of course, why would we get into a conflict with NATO? It's a nuclear armed power. It'd be global war. Who and whose interest could that possibly be? Whereas yeah. we might moralize about how there could be a scenario uh, where that's justifiable. Um, if it's not in terms of very real interests worthwhile uh, in Putin's mind, it doesn't seem like it's something that he would ever seriously consider. Um, I just thought that was an interesting kind of spin on how we hear a lot of world leaders talk in comparison to Putin. Once again, maybe it's kind of his uh, touch of the tism where he's just so blunt and matter of fact and realistic about the state of the world, which can sometimes come across abrasive or offensive, but often the times is, is nevertheless uh, very truthful. Yeah, and throughout this whole thing, there he, he says a lot that are a lot of things that are that I think would resonate with Americans. Just like the idea that you need someone who's forward looking. Um, he's kind of just making the. It reminded me of Vivek Ramaswamy, and maybe that's because uh, I have a bias or whatever. But it, it like just the the general idea in America, like the the populist idea right now that we need a new generation of of politicians that are forward-looking who are young who are looking at global trends um rather than you know biden who's been in there for as long as he has and has been involved in some of the worst foreign policy decisions in the last 30 and, years and it, it may come across as you know almost hypocritical from a, a leader of you know two decades plus yeah. um but that, once again that doesn't make just because someone might be hypocritical doesn't mean that what they're saying isn't true and that's a very important thing uh, to understand and internalize where a lot of criticisms that Putin levies 
you know, it's oftentimes called whataboutism, where uh, people frame it as Russia deflecting from their own problems. And in a sense, it may be, but that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile criticism, um, just because you happen to disagree and dislike the person who it's coming from for similar uh, or connected reasons. Right. Uh, so. You've said clearly that NATO expansion <laughs> eastward is a violation of the promise you all were made in 1990. It, it's a threat to your country. Right before you send troops into Ukraine, the Vice President of the United States will commune a security conference and encourage the President of Ukraine to join NATO. Do you think that was an effort to provoke you into military action? I repeat once again, we have repeatedly, repeatedly proposed to seek a solution to the problems that arose in Ukraine after 2014, coup d'etat, through peaceful means. But no one listened to us. And moreover, the Ukrainian leaders who were under the complete U.S. control suddenly declared that they would not comply with the Minsk agreements. They disliked everything there and continued military activity in that territory. And in parallel, that territory was being exploited by NATO military structures under the guise of various personnel training and retraining centers. They essentially began to create bases there. That's all. Ukraine announced that the Russians were a non-titular nationality while passing the laws that limit the rights of non-titular nationalities in Ukraine. Ukraine, having received all these southeastern territories as a gift from the Russian people, suddenly announced that the Russians were a non-titular nationality in that territory. Is that normal? All this put together led to the decision to end the war that neo-Nazis started in Ukraine in 2014. Do you, do you think Zelensky has the freedom to negotiate a settlement to this conflict? I don't know the details, of course, it's difficult for me to judge. But I believe he has, in any case, he used to have. His father fought against the fascists, Nazis, during World War II. I once talked to him about this. I said, Volodya, what are you doing? Why are you supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine today, while your father fought against fascism? He was a frontline soldier. I will not tell you what he answered, this is a separate topic, and I think it's incorrect for me to do so. But as to the freedom of choice, why not? He came to on the expectations of Ukrainian people that he would lead Ukraine to peace. He talked about this. It was thanks to this that he won the elections overwhelmingly. But then, when he came to power, in my opinion, he realized two things. Firstly, it is better not to clash with neo-Nazis and nationalists because they are aggressive and very active. You can expect anything from them. And secondly, the US-led West supports them and will always support those who antagonize with Russia. It is beneficial and safe. So he took the relevant position. So uh, I, I posted about this um on Twitter, if, if people are following me at, at M. Liam McCollum on Twitter, you could go um, search Hillary Clinton on my profile. Uh, so immediately after Putin invades Ukraine, uh, Hillary Clinton goes on MSNBC and she says uh, that the U.S. policy could be akin to funding certain groups in the Middle East uh, to take down uh, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Um, and, and she says that a, a similar strategy can be used in Ukraine to defeat Russia here. And, and Scott Horton has made the point that the initial strategy in this war was actually to fund an insurgency group akin to uh, funding, you know, what, what would eventually become Al Qaeda, the Mujahideen um, in the Soviet Afghan war. Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980 
And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Um, obviously, the similarities are, are not uh, ones that you should uh, bank on, because uh, the terrain, the development uh, in urban areas, et cetera, is so different. But I think that is the model that people are now uh, looking toward. And if there can be sufficient uh, armaments that get in, and they should be able to get in along some of uh, uh, the borders uh, between other nations and Ukraine, uh, and keep the Ukrainian, uh, both their military and their citizen uh, volunteer soldiers supplied, uh, that can continue to stymie Russia. Now, let's be you know, clear that Russia has overwhelming uh, military force. Uh, but of course, they did in Afghanistan as well. Um, Hillary Clinton acknowledged that very early on in this conflict, that that was the strategy. So I think he's spot on right here. I think I think if if Zelensky were taken out, if, if it if there was a coup, you could see the United States supporting neo-Nazi insurgents. I mean, they already are with with uh, Zelensky at the head, but um, I, I think he's he's making a solid point point here. Yeah, well, and not only uh, was it very likely their intention to try and drain Russia by funneling resources to groups that would be militantly opposed to them, uh, you know, for for devout ideological reasons, you know, those make great fighters, those make dedicated fighters. Um, and there's also uh, a bit of a conspiracy that it was an attempt to try and uh, depressurize uh, extremist right-wing sentiment in the United States, that we could get a bunch of uh, American neo-Nazis to go and fight in Ukraine over there um, as a sort of a way of uh, getting them out of the U.S. system and putting them to use uh, on behalf of the government. Uh, whether there's any uh, you know, truth in those claims, I, I do not know. But like Putin mentioned, there's certainly American mercenaries fighting over there. There's a lot of paramilitary, uh, radical, uh, so-called neo-Nazi groups out there. And so I would not be shocked if there were indeed Americans who have been at least pushed in the direction of fighting on behalf of Ukraine uh, because of ideological purposes. Yeah, and I, I think it just brings up the the potential unintended consequence of, of this war, too. Um, I mean, we, we have countless examples of this, like, you know, the creation of ISIS after all of our interventions. Um, that was an unintended consequence. I think what we could see here is, let's say this war ends, we, we could see this um, insurgency stronger, uh, more organized because of U.S. arms and, and funds. Uh, so even if this war ends now, Who's to say that we wouldn't see another conflict with this insurgency if they were to happen to overthrow the Zelensky government or something like that? Blowback like that could take so many forms as well. So let's say the U.S. and Europe were even to hold, uh, just abandon Ukraine, you know, very quickly draw down their support and uh, let the Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian government crumble. You would still have incredibly well-armed Ukrainian groups out there who then may turn their focus uh, to attacks uh, in Europe. 
uh, to try and gain back support and try and gain yeah. revenge for being, you know, in their eyes, abandoned by these powers who had for so long been propping them up. It's not out of the out of the question that we'd see not just insurgent sort of lingering guerrilla violence going on in Ukraine proper, but spreading to uh, other parties that were involved, even on their side, just because, uh, you know, kind of like the, uh, the Mujahideen would turn on us eventually, even though we supported them um, with the very weapons that we used to support them. Um, and so, you know, ideologically crazed people can come up with crazy justifications to attack just about anything, even the hand that feeds it. Yeah, yeah, it's the the, the Dave Smith maxim, the idea that if you want to know who our enemy is, you, you need to look at who we're funding now. And I mean, if you just look at Hillary Clinton's argument, it, it was plan A to fund this insurgency akin to funding the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan. Um, but all right, let's get back into it. Despite promising his people to end the war in Ukraine, he deceived his voters. But do you think at this point, as of February 2024, he has the latitude, the freedom to speak with you or your government directly about putting an end to this, which clearly isn't helping his country or the world? Can he do that, do you think? Why not? He considers himself head of state. He won the elections. Although we believe in Russia that the coup d'etat is the primary source of power for everything that happened after 2014. And in this sense, even today, government is flawed. But he considers himself the president and he is recognized by the United States, all of Europe, and practically the rest of the world in such a capacity. Why not? Again. We negotiated with Ukraine in Istanbul. We agreed. He was aware of this. Moreover, the negotiation group leader, Mr. Arhamiya is his last name, I believe still has the faction of the ruling party, the party of the president in the Rada. He still has the presidential faction in the Rada, the country's parliament. He still sits there. He even put his preliminary signature on the document, I am telling you about. But then he publicly stated to the whole world, we were ready to sign this document, but Mr. Johnson, then the prime minister of Great Britain, came and dissuaded us from doing this, saying it was better to fight Russia. They would give everything needed for us to return what was lost during the clashes with Russia. And we agreed with this proposal. Look, his statement has been published. He said it publicly. Can they return to this or not? The question is, do they want it or not? Further on, President Ukraine issued a decree prohibiting negotiations with us. Let him cancel that decree. And that's it. We have never refused negotiations, indeed. We hear all the time, is Russia ready? Yes, we have not refused. It was then who publicly refused. Well, let him cancel his decree and enter into negotiations. We have never refused. And the fact that they obeyed the demand or persuasion of Mr. Johnson, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, seems ridiculous and very sad to me. Because, as Mr. Arakamiya put it, we could have stopped those facilities with war a year and a half ago already. But the British persuaded us and we refused this. Where is Mr. Johnson now? And the war continues. Man, that's that's powerful. Obviously, Absolutely. Johnson is no longer in, in government right now. And um, we've had it confirmed by multiple sources. I, I know Fiona Hill was one of the, the first journalists to report on it. Um, Naftali Bennett came out in an interview, former prime minister of Israel, saying that uh, Boris Johnson went over to Ukraine and, and tried to um, interfere with the peace deal between Ukraine and Russia and that, that they had effectively, we, we now know, um, they'd effectively come to an agreement and, and they would have ended the, the conflict. Um, so, man, it's depressing stuff. Once again, it's a, it's a part of this uh, pattern that we've already pointed out of there being a prospect for peace, there being a proposal, and then it just being inexplicably sunk um, once again, here in the case of uh, Johnson, by a Western power coming in and kind of changing the terms of the deal for their own gain. 
Uh, it's just unfortunate to see. And, and you got to imagine that that doesn't reflect well upon the West in the eyes of every other country, you know, in the Middle East and Africa and, and South America, that they will be a, a future arbiter for peace. Uh, because, right. you know, fool me once, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Maybe they won't welcome in the U.S. as a mediator anymore. Yeah. Good question. Where do you think he is and why did he do that? Hell no. I don't understand it myself. There was a general starting point. For some reason, everyone had the illusion that Russia could be defeated on the battlefield. Because of arrogance, because of a pure heart, but not because of a great mind. You've described the connection between Russia and Ukraine. You've described Russia itself a couple of times as orthodox. That's central to your understanding of Russia. You said you're orthodox. What does that mean for you? You're a Christian leader by your own description. So what effect does that have on you? You know, as I already mentioned in 988, Prince Vladimir himself was baptized following the example of his grandmother, Princess Olga. And then he baptized his squad. And then gradually over the course of several years, he baptized all the Rus. It was a lengthy process from pagans to Christians. It took many years. But in the end, this orthodoxy, Eastern Christianity, deeply rooted itself in the consciousness of the Russian people. When Russia expanded and absorbed other nations who profess Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism, Russia has always been very loyal to those people who profess other religions. This is her strength. This is absolutely clear. And the fact is that the main postulates, main values are very similar, not to say the same, in all world religions I've just mentioned, and which are the traditional religions of the Russian Federation, Russia. By the way, Russian authorities were always very careful about the culture and religion of those people who came into the Russian Empire. This, in my opinion, forms the basis of both security and stability of the Russian statehood. All the peoples inhabiting Russia basically consider it their motherhood. If, say, people move over to you or to Europe from Latin America, an even clearer and more understandable example, people come, but yet they have come to you or to European countries from their historical home. And people who profess different religions in Russia consider Russia their motherland. They have no other motherland. We are together. This is one big family. And our traditional values are very similar. I've just mentioned one big family, but everyone has his her own family. And this is the basis of our society. And if we say that the motherland and the family are specifically connected with each other, it is indeed the case, since it is impossible to ensure a normal future for our children and our families unless we ensure a normal, sustainable future for the entire country, for the motherland. That is why patriotic sentiment is so strong in Russia. But can I, can I say that the, the one way in which the religions are different is that Christianity is specifically a non-violent religion. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, don't kill. How can a leader who has to kill of any country how can a leader be a Christian? How do you reconcile that to yourself? That's a good question. It is very easy when it comes to protecting oneself and one's family, one's homeland. We won't attack anyone. When did the developments in Ukraine start? Since the coup d'etat and the hostilities in Donbass began, that's when they started. And we're protecting our people, ourselves, our homeland, and our future. As for religion in general, you know, it's not about external manifestations. It's not about going to church every day or banging your head on the floor. It is in the heart. And our culture is so human-oriented. Dostoevsky, who was very well known in the West and the genius of Russian culture, Russian literature, spoke a lot about this, about the Russian soul. After all, Western society is more pragmatic. 
Russian people think more about the eternal, about moral values. I don't know, maybe you won't agree with me, but Western culture is more pragmatic after all. I'm not saying this is bad. It makes it possible for today's golden billion to achieve good success in production, even in science and so on. We've got to pause and give some respect there for sure to uh, his his Dostoevsky shout out. I think the fact yeah. that Putin shouted out Dostoevsky and not Tolstoy here uh, means he is the definitive winner of the 19th century uh, great Russian novelist contest. Uh, so congratulations, Dostoevsky. Especially because he was asked a question about, you know, Christianity and leadership. Tolstoy probably would have been the obvious answer, especially in the context of nonviolence. But he went with Dostoevsky. And yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm a bigger fan of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy came to mind when Tucker asked that question. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was interesting. But it's because he tied it to that idea of a Russian soul, which is really something that Dostoevsky uh, just emanates in his work and in his thought. And so it's interesting that he brings it up. And not only does he name drop Dostoevsky, but he touches on the ideas of another one of my favorite thinkers, who is uh, Petirum Sorokin, when he talks about how Russia has this more... Um, ideational, eternal, spiritually focused mindset as a nation, as a national idea and entity, as compared to the more material, pragmatic, um, you know, scientistic uh, West. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting reference, both to Dostoevsky directly and to the ideas of Sorokin and this difference between a more sensate culture and more ideational one. Um, I, and maybe this goes back as well to that kind of left and right hemisphere of the brain slash globe, that there are two complementary uh, but distinct different uh, mindsets and approaches to to the globe and its affairs. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was muted. I started talking when I paused the clip. Um, but what I was saying is uh, I, I have some friends who are in the Orthodox Church here um, and, and one of my friends who I grew up with who. I went to Lutheran church with me ever since high school and um, he's, he's inquiring into the Orthodox church and I'm seeing a lot of these arguments right now. So it's just a fascinating that he would bring it up in, in this interview, um, the, the East West split, because it does seem like a lot of the critiques are that the West is a lot more pragmatic uh, in terms of religion. It's a lot more legalistic, whereas the East is thinking about these these higher moral concepts. Um, it's very interesting that he would apply that to, to politics as well. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that we kind of look the same. So, so do you see the supernatural at work as you look out across what's happening in the world now? Do you see God at work? Do you ever think to yourself, these are forces that are not human? No, to be honest, I don't think so. My opinion is that the development of the world community is in accordance with inherent laws, and those laws are what they are. It's always been this way in the history of mankind. Some nations and countries rose, became stronger and more numerous, and then left the international stage, losing the status they had accustomed to. There is probably no need for me to give examples, but we could start with the Genghis Khan and court conquerors, the Golden Horde, and then end with the Roman Empire. It seems that there has never been anything like the Roman Empire in the history of mankind. Nevertheless, the potential of the barbarians gradually grew, as did their population. In general, the barbarians were getting stronger and begun to develop economically, as we would say today. This eventually led to the collapse of the Roman Empire and the regime imposed by the Romans. 
However, it took five centuries for the Roman Empire to fall apart. The difference with what is happening now is that all the processes of change are happening at the much faster pace than in Roman times. So when does the AI empire start, do you think? <laughs> You're asking increasingly more complicated questions. To answer them, you need to be an expert in big numbers, big data and AI. Mankind is currently facing many threats. Due to the genetic researches, it is now possible to create a superhuman, a specialized human being, a genetically engineered athlete, scientist, military man. There are reports that Elon Musk has already had a chip implanted in the human brain in the USA. What do you think of that? Well, I think there's no stopping Elon Musk. He will do as he sees fit. <laughs> Nevertheless, you need to find some common ground with him, search for ways to persuade him. I think he's a smart person, I truly believe he is. So you'll need to reach an agreement with him because this process needs to be formalized and subjected to certain rules. Humanity has to consider what is going to happen due to the newest development in genetics or in AI. One can make an approximate prediction of what will happen. Once mankind felt an existential threat coming from nuclear weapons, all nuclear nations began to come to terms with one another since they realized the negligent use of nuclear weaponry could drive humanity to extinction. It is impossible to stop research in genetics or AI today, just as it was impossible to stop the use of gunpowder back in the day. But as soon as we realize that the threat comes from unbridled and uncontrolled development of AI, or genetics, or any other field, the time will come to reach an international agreement on how to regulate these things. I, I appreciate all the time uh, you've given us. I just gonna ask you one last question, and that's about someone who's very famous in the United States, probably not here, Evan Gershkovitz, who's the Wall Street Journal reporter, he's 32, um, and he's been in prison for almost a year. Uh, this is a huge story in the United States, and I just wanna ask you directly, without getting into the details of it or your version of what happened, if as a sign of your decency, you would be willing to release him to us and we'll bring him back to the United States. <sighs> We have done so many gestures of goodwill out of decency that I think we have run out of them. We have never seen anyone reciprocate to us in a similar manner. However, in Wow, I'm surprised he asked that. Yeah, you know, and it was something that a lot of journalists were calling on him to ask, so I'm not shocked, but I'm definitely glad he did. But he yeah, went so far as to say that Putin, you know, he recommended Putin give him over to Tucker and his crew so that they can bring him home. Yeah. Um, that's how I interpreted that question. And that's very radical in and of itself. It was kind of a high pressure ask. Uh, and he kind of took a while to answer. I'm assuming the gears, the PR gears, the logistical gears were churning in his brain. But ultimately, yeah. obviously, he said that, um, and I can, maybe we can skip ahead because I know we're short on time there. We're trying to speed it up. But he, he goes on to say that it's a matter between the secret services, that the U.S. and the Russia are in contact about it, that it's not so simple. Tucker pushes back and says, you know, it's not clear that Gershkovich uh, was a spy. Putin says, well, it doesn't matter if, even if he wasn't part of an intelligence service. If you're a journalist seeking out covertly uh, classified information, you're by definition committing espionage. Uh, and Tucker pushes back on that and says that he's, you know, he's just a journalist, just a kid. Um, and ultimately, Putin expresses optimism that he could be released, that you know, he hopes that everything can be put right. Um, but ultimately, he, he says that it will be left to um, U.S. and Russian services to sort out. But bold of Tucker and good on him for, um, for at least trying. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it uh, on two times the speed and then fast forward.
shown the battlefield. Now they are apparently coming to realize that it is difficult to achieve, if possible at all. To sign it and the war would have been over long ago, 18 months ago. However, Prime Minister Johnson came, talked us out of it, and we missed that chance. Well, you missed it, you made a mistake, let them get back to that, that is all. Why do we have to bother ourselves and correct somebody else's mistakes? I know one can say it is our mistake. It was us who intensified the situation and decided to put an end to the war that started in 2014 in Donbass. As I have already said, by means of weapons. Let me get back to furthering history. I already told you this. We were just discussing it. Let us go back to 1991, when we were promised that NATO would not expand. To 2008, when the doors to NATO opened to the declaration of state sovereignty of Ukraine, declaring Ukraine a neutral state. Let us go back to the fact that NATO and U.S. military bases started to appear on the territory of Ukraine, creating threats to us. Let us go back to coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014. It is pointless though, isn't it? We may go back and forth endlessly, but they stop negotiations. Is it a mistake? Yes. Correct it. We are ready. What else is needed? Do you think it's too humiliating at this point for NATO to accept Russian control of what was two years ago Ukrainian territory? I said, uh, let them think how to do it with dignity. There are options if there is a will. Up until now, there has been the uproar and screaming about inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia on the battlefield. Now they are apparently coming to realize that it is difficult to achieve, if possible at all. In my opinion, it is impossible by definition. It is never going to happen. It seems to me that now, those who are in power in the West have come to realize this as well. If so, if the realization has set in, they have to think what to do next. We are ready for this dialogue. Would you be willing to say, congratulations, NATO, you won, and just keep the situation where it is now? You know, it is a subject matter for the negotiations. No one is willing to conduct or, to put it more accurately, they are willing but do not know how to do it. I know they want to. It is not just I see it, but I know they do want it. But they are struggling to understand how to do it. They have driven the situation to the point where we are at. It is not us who have done that. It is our partners, opponents who have done that. Well, now let them think how to reverse the situation. We're not against it. It would be funny if it were not so sad. This endless mobilization in Ukraine, the hysteria, the domestic problems, sooner or later it will result in agreement. You know this probably sounds strange given the current situation, but the relations between the two peoples will be rebuilt anyway. It will take a lot of time, but they will heal. I'll give you very unusual examples. There is a combat encounter on the battlefield. Here's a specific example. Ukrainian soldiers got encircled. This is an example from real life. Our soldiers were shouting to them, there is no chance, surrender yourselves, come out and you will be alive. Suddenly, the Ukrainian soldiers were screaming from there in Russian, perfect Russian, saying, Russians do not surrender, and all of them perished. They still identify themselves as Russian. What is happening is, to a certain extent, an element of a civil war. Everyone in the West thinks that the Russian people have been split by hostilities forever. No, they will be reunited. The unity is still there. Why are the Ukrainian authorities dismantling the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Because it brings together not only the territory, it brings together our souls. No one will be able to separate the soul. Shall we end here, or is there anything else? No, I think that's great. I see. Thank you, Mr. President. Free speech is bigger than any one person or any one organization. Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, my, my general takeaway is like... This is absolutely heroic of, of Tucker, especially with the way he finished um, asking that question um, about taking the journalists home with him. I mean, the, the I, this is absolutely the height of Tucker's career, no question. And, and it is a great thing that Fox News let him go. Um, you know, I, I was talking with one of my friends who's a big Trump supporter, um, and, and he was we were reacting to the news. Um, CNN had was reacting to the news that Tucker was going to interview Putin and was saying that that Tucker represents MAGA country or whatever. And, and they were they were freaking out about the fact that he was going to interview him. And, and my friend pointed out that that Tucker really isn't uh, 
like in full agreement with Trump uh, that that actually like he's influencing Trump. And, and I think that that's that's very true, because um, without, for instance, the the GOP debate where he was interviewing Tim Scott and uh, absolutely demolished Mike Pence, um, there was that panel that he held. I don't think today we would see the GOP as non-interventionist um, as they currently are. I think I think Tucker is currently in a role where he he is actually defining where the GOP base is, like where the populist base is at. And it's just completely heroic that he's going out there and, and interviewing Putin about this. Um, I think he he represents this this great fusion, this great nexus of something that Putin actually briefly touched on, which is that America is complex because on one hand, it has some very conservative elements uh, culturally and politically. And on the other hand, it is a place of rapid progress and change. And I think yeah. that Tucker is a conservative who is forward thinking and looking to adapt to that change instead of being a conservative who's looking to cement and calcify things in a state that's not sustainable. He's looking at how the U.S. can adapt its policy and its approach to still be the America that we love, to still be the land of liberty and freedom, uh, a city on the hill for the rest of the world. But how to do that in the world without losing that light that it has. And so I think that's why he's resonating with so many people and why he's perfect for an interview like this. Um, because I think you'd see a lot of people, not only in the U.S., but in, in Russian society, who would probably ask the same thing of their government, that they remain forward-looking while maintaining what it means to be Russian in a, in a changing multipolar world. I think both American identity-wise and Russians identity-wise, uh, as well as their governments, have to reconcile that. And people like Tucker, and by doing things like engaging with Putin, he's he's driving and accelerating that change and that fusion of forward-looking conservatism with a libertarian bend. I noted he's wearing a uh, black and gold, black and yellow tie, which may be coincidental or maybe a nod to a libertarian non-interventionism. Yeah, well, we've we've come a long way. I mean, just like since we first started talking about this, um, since I first had, had you on the podcast about this issue, um, you know, Tucker has been interviewed by Dave Smith a uh, major libertarian figure in the United States. And I, I do think that um, the libertarian kind of non-interventionist movement probably had a more profound effect on the zeitgeist than than uh, it gets any credit for, because in the background, they were having these conversations. And I do believe there was probably a ripple effect throughout the culture that, that like when we first started talking about this issue and, and when I was um, canvassing on the university about the issue, like at the beginning, it was it was a controversial topic. You did not know where people were going to lie on this issue. And and now we're at a point where most in the GOP are opposed to this. And, and it's in large part due to people like Tucker Carlson. I, I mean, I, I, I would attribute it to him. The fact that Donald Trump is going out there saying he's the candidate who doesn't want war. I mean, if you don't have Tucker Carlson going on there and destroying Mike Pence on this issue, I don't think Donald Trump's there because his first term wasn't the most anti-war. So he really is moving the needle and he's just a hero for it. That, that's my main for takeaway. Sure. I'll have to simmer on the rest of the interview and 
we're running out of time, but um, and I think you deserve a little bit of credit as well um, for having people like Scott Horton on for promoting um, Abelo and his book um, for, for highlighting things like uh, Oliver Stone's interviews in this interview. I think just the whole libertarian uh, and non-interventionist world out there, this, this realist thinking non-interventionist school of foreign policy that's really blossoming in the United States, um, I think shows like yours uh, and Dave Smith's, um, even to a certain extent, people like Joe Rogan, they all deserve a slice of credit in helping platform and popularize ideas that, like you noted, uh, could have gotten you in, in a lot of hot water when this whole conflict started. So, and, well, I, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that more. And I just thank you for coming on the show throughout this entire conflict. Had you on a, a lot now. And um, if if my classes uh, start to uh if, if if I get to a point where I'm not as stressed, I'll, I'll have another podcast with you here soon. But I, I really thank you so much for this. And um, it's, it's just great news. Hopefully, hopefully the war is coming to an end. Um, hopefully uh, there is really no appetite for it anymore after an interview like this. It's hopefully we can have a, a peace, a peace talk, peace proposal uh, podcast at some point here. Yeah. Uh, but for now, um, I guess I'm, I'm going to plug you, you know, make sure to follow Liam, follow myself as well at the underscore posts on Twitter, posts from underground. Um, and I look forward to our next conversation for sure. And best of luck as you, uh, you know, get into your uh, legal scholarship. Liam. I appreciate it, man.